Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host, and in this conversation, recorded in early August of 2020, I speak with Eric Asadorian. Eric is the force behind Guyanism.org. I encourage you to check out Guyanism.org, and it's a philosophical path through an ecologically unstable time. And you'll see that Eric and I share a profound love of life, of Gaia, of ecology as what I call the heart of theology. And he also, because he's a young father, he has uh, some rituals and things like that on the website. And I, I now consider him one of my closest colleagues in this uh, earth honoring faith. Enjoy. First, it's it's great uh, to join you, Michael. I know we've we've chatted a few times just informally, but I've actually since then been watching some of your other uh, conversations and, and such a rich, um, you know, treasure trove of, of information and ideas and, um, and and individuals that I've gotten to know a little bit or gotten to hear a little bit. So uh, it's been nice to really dig into that. Um, as for me, you know, so I, I mean, I think my uh, perspective has been formed really through 17 years at Worldwatch, uh, which I can go into more later, but I have studied sustainability and the biggest, biggest questions, which I'm you know, blessed uh, to have had that kind of freedom, um, but just to look at what is sustainability and is it possible anymore and how do we get there if so and what do we do if we can't? Uh, and so, you know, most of what I've been writing about since the beginning, you know, actually since I kind of broke through the kind of the early stages of, of being a researcher there where I was doing more concrete work, um, that's what I was doing. And, and as I was there, more and more, you know, I saw Arna Nass's critique of shallow ecology as legitimate and central to this conversation. And people like Martin Palmer who say, you know, environmentalism keeps the guilt and the fear and the anxiety from, you know, religion and strips out all the joy and the happiness and the community and all that. And that's kind of really brought me around to Guyanism or, or the Guyan way, or it's a work in progress. I've been thinking about it since probably 2008-9 and only really open myself to sharing it publicly probably in the last year, year and a half. Um, but so it's, I think there's a lot of vocabulary that is still being formed. Um, but ultimately, it's really about building a community of ecocentric individuals, Gaians, who recognize that their ultimate purpose, uh, especially now on a wounded planet, is to bring healing to that planet and to ourselves and to our communities. And, but that's not just a political process like environmentalism has become, but a, an opportunity to connect with other people around a spirituality, build community, help pull others who might be, you know, living the consumer way, uh, which isn't very deeply spiritually gratifying or, or meaning making, um, and bring them into this community, which then can actually bring more energy to this and actually expand our healing further. Yeah. 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 Share your journey and, um, and, and you know, uh, any smile posts along the way in terms of how you came yes. to this current understanding. So I will put the, the child rearing side, uh, aside for a minute just because you know, the background is, is a little bit 
circuitous and um and i'm surprised i'm here frankly right so when i i uh, was a kid i was a very good consumer I, I remember drinking soda and consuming all the things i'm supposed to consume lucky charms and fruity pebbles and you know <laughs> from breakfast on to to dinner time and beyond eating the garbage consumer diet um, and uh, I think it was actually my summer job in high school that really woke me up and shut me down all at the same time, giving me like a, a post-doom early glimpse, glimpse, right? I was a furniture mover. So I was literally moving 10 to 20,000 pounds of people's crap in a day, right? With three or four other people wrapping it in plastic just to throw that plastic away when it arrived. Um, you know, using 50 pound uh, sacks of paper to wrap their stuff, which again, just went right in the garbage and on and on. And I, you know, was kind of environmentally leaning at that moment and that shut me down completely. I said, this is hopeless. You know, I was a little 16 year, I didn't know anything about the world. I already decided it was all hopeless. Um, How old are you now? Kind of, I'm uh, 43. Okay, great. Yeah, but so kind of turned off completely uh, instead, kind of pursued a very academic um, story about, you know, why are we religious? Why do we believe in God? I studied psychology and religion in, in college, and that just gave me, by luck, um, an opportunity to go to India with a moral psychology professor who, um, you know, wanted to go back to his home, uh, Bangalore. Uh, he was a British uh, Indian, uh, and we went there uh, on a junket. I would say, you know, the research was the idea we were going to study Kohlberg's uh, moral universalism versus uh, Carol Gilbert's kind of relativism. And we did lots of school interviews. But what it, I took from that was the shock of the unsustainability of the spread of the consumer culture. I mean, everything from all the surfaces painted with, with you know, Pepsi ads and Coke ads uh, to, you know, the, the transformation of a somewhat sustainable street food system where people ate uh, on banana leaves and the, and the cows and the oxen produced waste that fueled the stoves to a foil and, and styrofoam based system where they were burning that in open pits on the side of the road. Um, and it shocked me deeply, right? I mean, the anthropology professors warned me of reverse culture shock and I came back completely devastated going into grocery stores and yes. wouldn't, couldn't buy anything and just was just disgusted with how I was living and how we were living and, and all of that. And so I was perfectly ripe to be organized, right? So I, um, the uh, Green Corps organizers came up to campus when I was, I, I was at, at Dartmouth College and uh, the executive director went there and she came up and she said, we, and Green Corps is a, a field school for environmental organizing. And, she, and the director came up there and said, we know what to do, we just need more people to do it. And, and so I was just, I was fully on board. And I went and they taught me the skills of organizing and, um, you know, but they also kind of, it was, classic environmentalism where it was about getting names getting donations getting you know building the semblance of power rather than the long-term yes. yes. goals of, of building community that could then be powerful um, i mean even in the way we were taught to canvas i remember um you know being so proud i got my first donation going up to the door and uh, and my supervisor said so what how did that go and i was like it's great we mobilized her she wants to get involved 
um, you know, we got a donation. And she's like, yeah, but you spent too much time there. Uh, we have a lot of doors to do, right? And so that kind of demoralized me right there. Um, and I also felt like I knew nothing about sustainability or the environment. I, was, I didn't study that. Yeah. Um, so I actually went to World Watch uh, a year later as an intern, uh, actually joined a project on the religion, uh, the religious community's role in sustainable development um, because of my background, it kind of pulled me in uh, and then stayed there until World Watch um, wound down in, in 2017. And um, and those years, I mean, I stayed so long, I think, because I was given that freedom to um, keep ratcheting up the ideas, you know, saying, okay, we, we have to rein in consume, the consumer economy. But then that didn't feel strong enough. So I kind of moved on to, okay, we actually, we need to transform culture completely and get away from the paradigm of consumerism and build this, cons this paradigm of sustainability. Um, and just kept kind of pushing beyond the comfort levels of even my World Watch colleagues, right? Wrote about economic degrowth the following year, which kind of polarized the board and the staff. And, you know, and, and so it was a real opportunity to really kind of keep saying, well, yeah, this isn't gonna do it. This isn't hard, far right. enough. We gotta keep going harder. Um, and, uh, and, and since World Watch had kind of a cachet around being mainstream-ish, but you know, serious mm -hmm. to, to write something like, economic degrowth is essential in overdeveloping, overdeveloped countries, it put a lot of power behind the words that I said, rather than if I were at, you know, someplace, yeah, you know, exactly. like Greenpeace. Continue on in terms of your own uh, heart and mind evolution, uh, in terms of getting the big picture, how, how you see things now in a coronavirus era and would that does that make any difference in terms of things that you've written uh as i as i mentioned uh i i just read this morning um a piece that you had written on education uh looking back from 2030 so i'm just curious how your worldview and your understanding of um what's possible and what's really not possible going forward um and has you know i mean you've got behind you moving towards sustainable prosperity uh yeah exactly and and for many of us in this conversation series 10 years ago we really believed that was possible um right. and exactly. and so tell us a little bit about that journey for you yeah i actually thought about switching the the cover i have i have two state of the world covers in in the house the other one is the next year, so 2013, is sustainability still possible, right? Like, so just in the two years uh, from 2012 to 2013, there was a massive mind shift. Exactly. Um, but, but, uh, but, you know, sustainable prosperity is in theory achievable. It just doesn't look anything like we're talking or we're, we're, we're used to right? the consumer model of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to think that it is possible in, at a certain scale but that um, uh, at a larger scale, when you've got, you know, the whole parable of the tribes thing, you know, when you've got uh, international power-based corporations uh, and multinationals and oligarchs and, you know, just the whole gamut, uh, we're going to, you know, in my world, one of the things that I've studied a lot in the last seven and a half years is the rise and fall of civilizations. <clears throat> and we have dozens, scores of examples of city-based anthropocentric human-centered civilizations with human-centered religion that's often gets co-opted 
I want to come back to talking a little bit about religion with you. Uh, but, but none of them, there's not a single example that we have of them sort of in their declining years, their declining decades of, of their contraction collapse when they've gone into overshoot um, and, uh, and are reaping the consequences of that becoming sustainable. It, it just doesn't tend to happen at the systemic level. But I certainly agree that at, at small scale, at local, village, town, neighborhood, families, uh, it's, it's not only possible, but it, if our species survives this bottleneck, it's the only thing that's sustainable. It's the only thing that's genuinely right. sustainable. You know, I hope we'll talk bottlenecks at one point, because I mean, I think we are destined to go through one. Um, we just have no choice at this point. But as far as education, I mean, so in 2012, my son was born. He's, uh, he's eight now. And um, even before then, I mean, in the, in the kind of culture changing work that I was doing at, at World Watch, I created a, a rubric of, okay, well, so if we recognize that culture is malleable, which is kind of the, the heart of it, right? The, Dana Meadows kind of pointed out the best way to change a system is to change the paradigm, change the culture. Um, so then, okay, well, what are the, the societal institutions to change culture? It's education, business, government, um, uh, traditions, uh, media and marketing, and um, uh, social mo movements, right? So, okay, we got all those. Uh, and so there was a whole section on education that I was thinking about, but it was in a abstract sense of it, right? I didn't have a son yet. Uh, but so then kind of having the opportunity in 2017, um, you know, State of the World needed a theme and, and I was really excited about education, obviously really expanding this question of what education has to look like. And even, even in those seven years, it wasn't just about sustainability education anymore. It was education for sustainability and, and resilience, right? There is a very small literature on resilience education at this point. And, and if you actually Google that, you'll find psychological resilience, right? But, uh, which is right. not, I mean, which is a component of it. But I'm talking about, okay, if a collapse is really happening in my ch son's lifetime, or maybe my own, um, depending on how, if I make it through, uh, you know, the, there's really a whole set of skills that he's, he's going to need, not just, you know, how to mobilize people and organize around sustainability or, or kind of you know that kind of thing but also just how to deal with conflict and yes. um and and basic uh wilderness skills perhaps and farming i mean we this summer you know a lot of you know i, I homeschool him uh and uh and you know he during the normal times he was going on tuesdays to a uh, forest wilderness school where he'd spend six hours in the woods no matter the weather with you know trained wilderness mentors and, and other kids and he loves That's it. Awesome. Um, yeah, and he, I mean he gets some skills and he was in the younger group until you know this fall if it starts again he'll go into the older group so he'll start learning knife skills and making fire and all that stuff. But even in the younger you know, group it's it's about games you know they they gamify all this wilderness knowledge and and they're eating plants and they're kind of stalking quietly but it's all game right. But he's going to, you know, those skills are essential in connecting him to Gaia, first Amen. of all. That's, you know. Amen. Um, but also just in having you know, basic understanding of, of nature and ecosystems. And if our systems do fall apart, you know, not everybody's going to survive off of acorns. But having that knowledge on how to process acorns isn't going to hurt. Um, <laughs> if you can get some access to them, that might mean the difference between life and death. 
um, and the connections to um, the rest of it. Right now, I, I was going to say, right now we're uh, we're going to a little CSA farm and we're farming it for a couple hours a week, which is hard work. I didn't actually realize how much work it is, and I know I should know, but it's not like I do it all the time. But so it, just him getting that experience, and we're wrapping tomato plants to make them stronger, and we're weeding and weeding and weeding, and you know taking care of cucumber plants and. So it's, you know, all those skills, even if it, if it leads him to want to, you know, go into a different sector, but, you know, he has it in his knowledge in case he ever needs it, um, or at least has respect for people who make that their livelihood by choice or by, you know, necessity. So, so yeah, so, I mean, for me, a lot of what I'm trying to do with my own son is just really put earth at the center yes. of his education. Yes. Um, that doesn't mean it's, we're not all about math and science and English and, and languages. Actually, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit rambly today. I'm sorry. Interrupt me at any point, but I'll make one more point right now. Um, when I asked, when I was working on this, I asked a colleague, how do you make a child resilient for, you know, these, these um, tough times ahead? And he said one word, he said, and it wasn't plastics. It was languages. Um, and, and, uh, and he just, you know, he was a German guy who worked with the Goethe Institute. So it's not surprising, right? Language is, is central in, in the European perspective, but it was a good reminder. And, and right now my son is learning four languages because he has wow. a trilingual mother and, and we added Spanish in there. And so, I mean, those, that's a skill set that is going to come in handy in any, in any future. Yeah. Right. So language is essential any, anyway, but um, you can make a living out of translating. Uh, I kind of, with the earth education um, state of the world, I borrowed Maslow's pyramid structure to kind of make that very, very clear, right? At the foundation of earth education has to be that relationship with the earth. And then stacked on top of that is social emotional learning, uh, you know, interdependent, interrelationship uh, skills. And then you can keep going above that critical thinking and, and systems thinking, you know, uh, basic life skills. Yes. And then if you kind of bring it up all together, you know, at the peak, which would be Maslow's kind of self-actualization, it would be, you know, earth-centric leadership. Yes, right? exactly. So that you, you need all those elements working together um, to really bring out an, a, a leader that can get us through both a transition to sustainability or the painful collapse or maybe the collapse to sustainability, whatever scenario we kind of go through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I wanted to comment on is your solar meditation um, and your attention to the importance of ritual and to um, you know, meditation. I, I, I define meditation as paying attention at the speed of life. So there's lots of different ways to do that. But um, what it reminded me of when I was reviewing your website today is that I fell in love with Connie Barlow. Before I met her, she wrote a book called Green, in 1997, she wrote a book called Green Space, Green Time, The Way of Science. And it's really the spirituality of science. It's a Gaian understanding. Um, uh, her former partner is Tyler Volk, who's a Gaian scientist at New York University. Uh, and uh, at any rate, she had a ritual, uh, a Tiamat ritual at the end of her book, which was all about sort of, you know, helping kids and teenagers have this like playful, like gamify, uh, gamify the science 
Um, and I read this and I thought, who the hell is this woman? I just love her, you know, is the bringing together of ecology, science and ritual was just really yummy, you know. So um, anyway, I just deeply resonated with, with uh, anything that you do along those lines. I mean, your way of bringing together Gaian philosophy and the practice, what I call practical spirituality um, uh, and sort of ecocentrism is uh, just so so profoundly aligned with what I think is important. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. The healthy and unhealthy aspects of religion in today's society. Just anything you want to say on the topic of religion. Okay. Uh, well, I want to say something about Goldsmith. Actually, I, the way it's interesting because I, I, you know, I call it the Gaian way as well, and I'm inspired by his book. But also, Christianity was originally called the way, right? Yes. And it's just it's so simple, right? Um, and, and it keeps being repeated over and over, right? Taoism, obviously, is the way, right? Like, you know, so it's a, it is, it's con communicating that there is a path that will bring you deeper meaning, that will bring you a community, that will bring you something more than what the day today brings, right? And I, and I, for me, I mean, I, it's, it's weird trying to create my own philosophy, right? I mean, I, you know, it's, it's not, that unusual lots of people did it in ancient greece and arnanas did it not so long ago right so i can kind of remind myself that i'm not being you know very egotistical um or or just wacko um you know so but you know when i put that aside and just think okay how is this how is this helping me i mean you mentioned the solar meditation and and i'm trying to integrate meditation much more deeply as you know, prayer was important when I was a Christian growing up. Uh, and, and as soon as I lost belief in the Christian God, I stopped praying, right? But there's so much evidence that shows that praying and meditation, um, which I feel like are you know, very close siblings, uh, are, is very deeply healing, right? And, and beneficial in all different ways. So why do we have to get rid of these practices just because we're secular environmentalists, right? So, you know, so a lot of this is me cultivating the different aspects of environmentalism that I wish existed, right? So um, there's a private practice of, of meditation, right? And I actually borrowed liberally from, from Islam in that case, right? I, five times a day seemed like a bar too high at this point. But three times a day, you know, sunrise or whenever you wake up, noon and evening or before bed or whatever, that, that makes sense, right? It, it, those are the three moments of the day that kind of are transitional. Um, we're not talking about a long process, you know, seven to 10 minutes is a decent meditation session if that's, you know, if that makes it calming rather than stressful, right? If you're gonna have to do 20 minutes and you freak out about it, well, let's not do it. Um, you know, and you can have so many different types of meditation. My son and I do karate, which, as I tell him over and over, that is not a, an extracurricular. That is fundamental in your training for what's coming. Yes. Um, you know, where he is, uh, you know, it teaches respect, it teaches discipline, it teaches basic defense skills, which, you know, there is a chance that those are necessary. Um, but that is a very much of a form of meditation. I mean, we do tai chi like meditations within the practice but we also you know do zazen sitting and and just the movement of a kata is meditating so so for me you know, you know getting to this point it, 
you know, there's a, a meditation, there's a kind of a daily well, practice, yeah, take, take, it, also, take, it, take a minute or two and just describe the solar meditation so that people listening or watching this conversation have a sense of what it is you're referring to. Sure, yeah, it, very briefly. I mean, if, for anyone who knows what Trataka is, you know, this candlelight meditation where you're just kind of, um, you know, focusing on the, a candle flame, either in your mind, once you've seen a candle enough, or, or a literal candle. Um, and and I, I like that meditation. It's simple, it's straightforward, uh, but it's not ecological necessarily. I mean, uh, you know, it's fine. It's a perfectly good meditation. But then NASA just had released a one hour long, you know, tracking a decade's worth of the sun. Uh, and in, you know, at extreme UV you know, radiation levels. So you can, but it, you can watch that. And it's like a candle flame, right? So for, that was the click where I was like, okay, we can really connect to the sun. Um, you know, we can do 11 breath cycles because that's the solar cycle is 11, right? So you can, you, know, you can make it calming. You can really just focus on the sun because the meditation for me is still not natural, right? So I do need some sort of thing to keep my mind from wandering, right? Whether that's a imaginary flame or sun or, um, you know, the, the kind of, um, the, I call it digesting, which is my version of, of Tonglen, the Buddhist, the Tibetan Buddhist one, where you're kind of breathing in, digesting, you know, in a, in a more natural way, and then exhaling, breathing in suffering and exhaling, um, you know, the, like CO2, right? Or, or if a, a plant is breathing in CO2 and the, the side effect is oxygen for us to breathe, right? Can we breathe in suffering and let out, um, health. And I don't believe it literally, right? I'm not, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a realist as well, uh, you know, in, in that sense. The, the idea though is if prayer works, if all the data shows that meditation lowers blood pressure, improves concentration, does all these things, um, why wouldn't we be doing it? And why don't we find a system that embeds it more naturally so that we don't have to explain why we're doing it all the time, right? right. Uh, and then, so the last point of that is, that, so you have, you have this as a daily practice, but what, what I feel like is missing for me most deeply as an environmentalist is the equivalent of a Sunday service, right? Mm -hmm. That from the beginning has been my intention with, with Guyanism, right? Is to build local groups that can cultivate uh, a local gathering. Um, even in the COVID era, it is an outdoor um, you know, forest meditation, right? So you can have a varying set of meditations. You can have the coffee or the sassafras tea hour afterwards. So you're building community, which is then organically leading to actions, right? It's one thing if I want to go down and do the protest and I have no one to go with. I don't have a community that's kind of putting pressure on me in a good way saying, hey, you want to come with me to the protest? Let's make signs tomorrow and we'll go. Um, you know, we, I, that's why church is so powerful, right? You have that community that helps you live your best life and be your best self. And I don't think the environmental, um, you know, sector, which is very professionalized, unfortunately, for the most part, it, it's not, it's not achieving that anymore. So that's kind of where I come from. Right. Yeah. Another question that I've been asking my guests in this series is related to impermanence, death, mortality. And one of the things I read uh, on your, uh, actually, I, th I think it was actually cross-posted on uh, resilience um, on, you know, sort of 
one of the one of the hidden blessings or one of the side effects that's a positive thing about COVID-19 is it's making us more death aware. And that, you know, that old spiritual advice of keeping your mortality as an advisor to not take your life for granted. So anything you want to say about death, impermanence, and living now in a, in a COVID-19 era? Yeah, I mean, I think you summed it up to its bones. I, I think so much of us, so many of us are kind of in that death denial stage. Uh, and, and so we don't want to think about it. But people literally thought about it every time they left their house, right? And that was, I think, helpful uh, overall, right? Um, I mean, when you have to actually say, do I really want to go to the grocery store? <laughs> do I really need coffee? Well, I'll take the risk. I'm doing it, <laughs> right? So I, there's that kind of, um, you know, shocker uh, where we have insulated ourselves at every level from death, right? I mean, I, for me, I was in that camp. I mean, I remember avoiding, you know, finding an excuse when I was in high school. I was in like the kind of the athletic camp before uh, school started. Um, and it was a good excuse not to go to my grandmother's funeral, right? And, and it was really because I was afraid of death. And I, you know, didn't want to have negative feelings and all that stuff. Um, it wasn't really until my dad died in 2005 and he died suddenly from a heart attack that I was shocked awake into the horrors of our system that doesn't prepare us for death, that hides death. I mean, I went through the process with my mom of, you know, because it was sudden, there was no preparation. So we just, you know, got manipulated by the evil death industry. I don't use the word lightly evil, but I, you know, they're pretty, I mean, ever since the seventies with the American way of death, they've been pretty, effective at just milking people in their moment of suffering saying so, you know upscaling coffins you're forcing you telling you that the rules are different than they really are oh no you must embalm or, or whatever so you know we wasted a huge amount of resources on on segregating my father permanently or for a, the next 500 years from Gaia right and it and it still pains me right the the idea that he was embalmed and put in a fancy coffin in a plastic vault under pesticide laden um you know grass in a in a in a modern cemetery i i'm you know i'm working hard not to get upset as i'm talking yes. uh, and and i don't want that for anybody right i don't want us to believe that we want to be separate from nature when we die Right. I mean, I, I think the essay that I valued writing most for, for Guyanism was actually this other essay on, on, uh, on kind of on death, uh, more specifically, not COVID, where just uh, there were two stories very similar, uh, basically the same story, but with different uh, metaphors. Um, one is from Tuesdays with Maury, right? The the wave that's rushing towards the shore and says, "Oh my gosh, this shore is coming!" Right? And the other wave says, "No, you're all you're just part of the ocean. Stop freaking out!" Right? So death returns us to Gaia, right? And the other story was almost identical from a, a Buddhist monk saying, "You know, when the only time a river really differentiates itself from the river is in the waterfall where the drops kind of separate out." you can see them right but you're still part of the river and when it returns to the river uh, you know it's it's back right and that, the droplets shouldn't freak out either 
And I think humans have to kind of accept that, right? The, there are lots of religions all trying to deal with the, you know, death in different ways, you know, immortality um, or nirvana, nothingness, right? So it's like, why are atheists so afraid of the nothingness when, you know, Buddhists are actually striving for breaking out of the wheel of reincarnation? Um, but I think, you know, for me, this process has really helped me clarify that we kind of have the best of both, right? So we return to something greater, right? In Hinduism, it would be Atman, right? But it's, you know, it's Gaia, right? We, our life will go back into other plants, other animals, other creatures. We won't be conscious, right? And that's okay though, right? We don't need to reincarnate. We don't need to have immortal life, right? We just need to accept that we have a certain moment of time where we are conscious and differentiated from Gaia and we can do great things with this life energy. Uh, you know, and, and for me, great things above all, ultimate purpose is above all healing the earth, bringing us back into communion with this living planet and, and healing the, the mistakes that we've made, some unintentionally now, some intentionally, but we can really get us to a, you know, a, a, a new positive um, kind of um, relationship with, yeah. with the earth and with other creation. I like it. So, Eric, I want to ask you about how have you processed what tools have been helpful or practices or exercises, um, uh, you know, dealing with depression, anger, frustration, grief, certainly grief, seeing what's happening to the world and, and being so committed as you've been for a long time to helping or trying to steer humanity in the right direction. Um, how have you dealt with and what has been supportive for you in the dealing in the processing of the difficult emotions around all that? It's an interesting question. I mean, and I'm, it's not coming as a surprise because I read the questions ahead of time, but it's still hard to answer. <laughs> I mean, so there's, there's the, there's the idealized versus the real, right? So I think many of us simply turn off the fear, right? Or, or maybe I'm lucky in that I kind of have that ability to kind of create just enough denial to keep functioning, <laughs> um, but not enough to kind of disconnect, yes. right? And so that's, that's the real answer, I think. You know, I mean, I, I certainly now, you know, the meditation and the and kind of going through things, um, you know, staying engaged, trying to push further than you know colleagues comfort levels and and kind of go for what i think you know speaking truth right i mean being honest about where we're, we're heading um but but there's also just a level of saying okay i'm going to do as much as i can and not allow depression to consume me right? I, I was reading an npr article recently um about buddhist monks, women Buddhist monks uh, who you know, really focus on, on training uh, young women in self-defense, on disaster training, or disaster cleanup, uh, on um, education, all these things. And then the story ended with, and on Sunday nights they watch horror movies. <laughs> Right? And I'm like, that was, that really? That, okay. Right? I wasn't expecting that, right? Because you have like this, you have this romanticized version, you know, image of, of Buddhist nuns uh, who uh, you know, are, are, you know, very pious, right? Just like a 
Christian monk or whatever. Uh, and the idea that they can just not take themselves seriously and enjoy Jaws or, or whatever movie they were. Halloween, I think they actually were talking about, um, which is not even a good movie. So I don't know how they pick that pick. But, but so, I mean, a lot of, I, I think there is a, a little bit of an escapism that, you know, I think is a healthy amount of escapism. Right? Yeah, I, I call it adaptive inattention. It's like you're not in denial, mm -hmm. but if you know, I mean, there's lots of people that they're not in denial of climate change. They get it's severe, and, but they also get that we may already be into a runaway, abrupt climate change regime where there's nothing we can do about it. So you got to wake up each day having a good life, you know, raising your kid, doing whatever you need to do. And so it's a adaptive inattention is the way I think about it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, no. So I, I think that that's nicely framed. And I mean, I certainly being just, you know, homeschooling my son, you know, a lot of energy is going there. So that kind of keeps me kind of invigorated and, and joyful. And we play, I mean, we actually did a, 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 as COVID was, well, before it started and as it raged, we did a, a kind of a, a marathon of pandemic legacy season one and two, right? So there's this this complex uh, legacy game where you play, you know, 12 months of the of, of fighting pandemics, right? And, and while, you know, I was like, is this wrong to be doing during a pandemic? Is it going to scare my son rather than like kind of be escapism? Uh, but it was highly useful in kind of putting safe boundaries around it and giving him the language to think and talk about pandemics. Um, you know, before the pandemic actually started, we watched the Netflix pandemic documentary, which also, you know, again, I mean, it just, it gives him an ability to think yes. through things and talk through things. And, um, you know, so it's, you know, storytelling has always been a way yes. to kind of talk about difficult things in ways that make it safer. Yes. So there's some of that. Um, but I also think, you know, just keeping working, uh, you know, at World Watch, that was probably, you know, just focusing on trying to communicate, trying to you know, spread an understanding and hope that that would do the trick. Uh, of course, uh, you know, I think we both agree that we're in for a rough ride, no matter how many people kind of come over to, to an understanding. But now, especially with Guyanism, I mean, it's about building community. Um, it's about the, the spiritual practice that I've neglected for, you know, my academic years at, yeah. at Worldwatch. Um, yeah. and, and it's been helpful. I mean, we have a monthly guy in conversation online where you know 12 to 15 of us sit down and, and and talk about different issues whether that's mortality once we talked um about what is gaia just because you know we can't take that for granted that everyone agreed and you know and it was it was helpful we came you know we talked about is is it a metaphor is it a vision is it a focus right um is it a living organism you know but but the big point that came through is well however we define it the idea is that it is a focus to bring a community of action, you know, of, of practice together um, that can actually do something good with yeah. their with their life energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting on, on your homepage, Guyanism.org, you've, you've got right there at the, the start, you know, with few years left before the rapid shift of Earth systems, it's time for a philosophy that can help people too. And then you've got four things, A, B, C, D. And it's sort of a mix of things like, oh, absolutely. And like, you know, a little idealistic. So I just want to read these and have you comment to whatever degree you want. So A, 
uh, it's time for a philosophy that can help people to build a community of those who believe Gaia is sacred and that there is no higher calling than protecting and restoring Gaia. 100% right there. I mean, that's, that, that's what yeah. it's all about. That's ecocentrism, I, you know. Although I would personally remove the word believe. It's not about believing that Gaia mm. is sacred. We, we have historical knowledge that only those cultures that treated Gaia as a greater thou to be honored and, re and respected rather than an it to be a source of resources and waste survive. So it's sort of pragmatic. It's not about beliefs. But B, provide ways to stop the horrors that we are unleashing on the planet ourselves and countless other species. When I read that, my first thought was, how's that going? <laughs> you know? it's, it's like, that's, those are nice words, but you know, we're in such uh, you know, the, this, this global capitalist anthropocentric uh, system is so ecocidal that, um, yeah. So the third, offer means to prepare oneself, one's families, and one's communities for the difficult, impossible, terrible changes coming. Amen. Right there. And then D, find ways to draw others away from the earth-consuming dominant cultures and toward a Gaian culture. I align with that. However, I also have this pragmatic side of me that, you know, trying to trying to do that at scale, trying to do that in a ways that, you know, not just with certain individuals, but with thousands, millions of people is pretty much impossible in a, in a dominant culture where the media, uh, social media, TV, you know, what feeds people's minds is anything but that. So anyway, anything you want to say about Guyanism in general, but you know, anything related to those. Well, it's, it's funny. Cause so I wrote those in the beginning, right? So it, when I put this, I started writing uh, about, I think, June of last year, uh, a weekly essay. I said, okay, this is, this is probably the level that I can sustain without, you know, either overcommitting and then it falling apart. Um, you know, and, and frankly, do people really want to read more than one essay a week? I mean, I'm so overwhelmed. There's so much good information out there. You know, I, it's arrogant to think anybody has more time than one essay from me a week. Uh, so that was kind of the model that I, I stuck with. And, and before I started doing that, I was like, okay, I need a few basic pages. Um, you're right. The second one, I, I, you know, there is nothing. There. I mean, right now, you know, what can I show for this? Some, some, you know, essays uh, that hopefully inspire some people to take on new practices. We have a, a kind of a, a monthly gathering plus more engagement individually, um, you know, one-on-one uh, -on -one at, at different times. Some uh, are interested in starting their own local group. One is starting one. I'm starting one here in Middletown. It was a little delayed because of COVID, um, but it's kind of launching in, in September with forest meditation. So I think it's going to be safe. Where do you live? Um, I, I forget. In, in Middletown, Connecticut. Oh, right. Okay, great. Uh, but, but so how does it scale? I, I don't know, right? But then again, I mean, if you... Like, I mean, I, one of the more inspiring books I've read is uh, Rodney Stark's kind of, uh, kind of early Christianity history, right? Where, um, you know, if, if you know, one of his theses was that Christianity thrived in periods of epidemics because, you know, the Christians stuck around and helped pagans um, in the Roman sense, not neo-pagans, um, you know, who, you know whose, whose family and friends might have fled the city uh, because they had means, uh, these ones didn't. They were, you know, the ones that survived. They might no longer have a social network, but the Christians were there, 
Um, they also saw Christians in a, an exemplary right, uh, light because they were saved, um, because they saved them. So, so Christianity kind of flourished in those times of, of disruption. Um, so I think that is a model that, I mean, I don't want the disruption just so Guyanism can flourish, but I think the disruption is coming, frankly. Um, that's not really up for debate. So can we provide a structure of, you know, a community in, uh, of practice where um, people are coming together, they're doing meditation, they're feeling good spiritually, they're also providing each other mutual aid, which was a kind of an essential element of religion from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that can, the model for me for that was a very short-lived effort uh, by the Institute for Policy Studies called Resilience Circles, right, where they actually got people together and the idea was let's talk about what resources we have, what needs we have, for, um, and let's talk about how we can help each other, right? And the idea was that that would build some sort of um, community solidarity, resilience um, for when things start to fall apart. It didn't work. I don't know if that was because they just ran out of funding because funders being, you know, very project, um, you know, they jump from project to project. Um, they, they did find that the best successes with those circles were in already established churches, which was a, you know, a major light for me again at that point where it's like, okay, you really need a deeper multifaceted community if you're going to do these other things, right? You, it's one thing to have a transition town asking, you know, bringing people together specifically just to mobilize their communities to be more you know, resilient or that kind of thing. It's another if you're coming together each week to meditate, to connect, to hang out. Um, you know, there's, the kids are coming because there's a forest Sunday school. So maybe the parents are only like half interested, but the kids love it. So they're coming and the community's growing, it's strengthening. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, suddenly that, that creates a little bit of momentum locally. Um, I don't know if this can scale, if there's time. I mean, we have, uh, you know, yeah, in modern it's, era, it's kind of, have, a, it's kind of a moot zoom point. and we have, we have, we have kind of the internet to kind of facilitate. Um, so there is some kind of perks right now that could allow it. Um, but I also think, you know, the, the, whether this, this specifically scales or other ecocentric kind of ideologies, that's not, I don't care. Exactly. Right? I'm not coming to this with ego. I'm coming exactly. to this with, we have to put guy at the center and somehow if we don't, then we know what's going to happen. Yes. Um, if we do, we still might have a chance at kind of thriving um, for a few more millennia or something like that. Or after, again, after some dark times ahead. Yeah. 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 No, if, if the, um, if the evidence of history, if the verdict of history is, you know, of two million years of, of hominid existence since Homo habilis, you know, two and a half million years. If, if what has proven itself to be genuinely sustainable, uh, not self-destructive, are forms of what we would call permaculture, regeneration, working with learning from the living world, working with the living world, preserving the living world as our first and foremost sacred responsibility, um, and then passing on the skills to our children and grandchildren for how to do that. And then, you know, if that's the case, then the, it's not like we, 
at this point, my, this is my worldview, we don't have to try to stop industrialism from hitting the wall. It's going to hit the wall. Um, sure. But then the question is, can we plant enough seeds so that on the other side, those communities, those cultures, little, little C cultures and communities um, of practice and of heart and of relationship can then be an inspiration to others to, I, I consider it like the prodigal species, like we've squandered our inheritance, we're waking up to our predicament in the pig pen as it were, and we're coming home to life as divine, as, to reality. Um, whether you use mythic language, God language, or, or more secular language. And um, so it doesn't matter that it, whether it scales or not. I, of course, don't think it can scale, but that doesn't make it any less important, any less vital. It gives you life. It nourishes you and your family and others that are engaged in this process. Um, it feeds your souls and it plants seeds so that, you know, as John Michael Greer says, when the, when the rubble stops bouncing uh, and new systems can emerge, hopefully some of them will be reflecting a, a Guyanism, uh, ecocentric, life-centered perspective. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I know I mean, when I was writing in Transforming Cultures, the kind of, the, the kind of final point was about these cultural pioneers that could sow those seeds, right? And the, the, you know, the pioneer was a double play on the word, but more on the, on the ecological sense of the pioneer species, right? Because mm -hmm. when the forest burns down, right, if we didn't plant the seeds, then there will be no um, yes. new opportunities, new pathways. And, and I do not take for granted that even sowing those seeds will be enough, right? There will be, there, I think the tendency will be towards fascism and, and theocracy and other things that create, uh, you know, this fundamental feelings of security uh, that um, is, is, is a fear, right? And I would say the other point when you were speaking with the tearing down the wall, we do still need to control how that wall falls, right? I mean, so if, if we don't somehow rein in the nukes that we have in our arsenals and the nuclear power plants and and, and that kind of thing, and even the dams, right? If you know these, if if we just collapse without planning, um, when those things, you know, finally break down, there's going to be a lot more lives yes. lost and, yes. and and species lost and all of that than if we said, you know what, things are far, starting to fall apart now. In, in, you know, instead of this letting it go, I mean, we see we see great, great case studies with Soviet Union, right? I mean, the U.S stepped in and tried to kind of secure their nuclear arsenal a little bit for them because they couldn't pay their soldiers and all that. And I hope somebody will pay for the U.S. <laughs> to secure ours when we, when we fall apart. But I don't know if there will be someone left. Yeah. Uh, anything that you would like to say to bring this conversation to completion? You, you read the questions that I... Uh, uh, that I've been asking some guests. Uh, I don't want this to go too long. So anything that you want to uh, offer that you didn't get a chance to, that you, you know, were prepared to discuss, uh, or just anything that uh, you'd like to say to uh, feel complete in this conversation? You asked me earlier about education in the future and how the pandemic um, changes that. I mean, I, I think it's funny when I, the first draft of that essay, and the essay you're referring to is the, is the final chapter of, of State of the World 2017, Earth Education. And it's, you know, glimpses at what Earth Education could look like uh, in 2030. And the first draft was actually in 2040. Not sure why, I think maybe going 20 years in advance gave me more imaginative, create, you know, creative opportunity. 
But as my colleague pointed out when I was saying, well, but things are gonna be so bad that this is just not gonna be realistic. And, and, and I was like, yeah, he's like, don't write from that year because it's just, you're not gonna, you're gonna be talking about everybody's back out in the woods and learning basic skills again. And I was like, oh, okay, you're right, you're right. 2030 gives me a lot more freedom to kind of, you know, create imaginations, um, you know, imaginaries that are kind of relevant, right? So I, I felt like I could really draw out that what's stopping us from having schools organized around you know, being in a forest all the time, right? What's and nothing is. I mean, we, we've shown that the forest school is quite, quite something for, for elementary kids, and now they're extending outwards for older kids. But what's stopping us from having a marriage between, uh, you know, kind of, I, I, in a, at, my, at my most controversial, I married kind of controversial environmental technologies with moral education, right? Because it's one thing to talk about, um, you know, nanotechnology or geoengineering or uh, biotech or something without any parallel or embedded moral education, right? You know, if, if we put the idea that this is about, you know, profit and, and strengthening corporate, um, you know, monopolies, whatever, then bioengineering is, is a horror. Um, but is there a way that we can actually start thinking about um, embedding moral education with these inevitable conversations around technology, right? Whether that's appropriate technology or these controversial ones, right? So are there ways that we can really be more radical in thinking through what education looks like in a formal setting? Right? It's easy to do any of this in a homeschool setting, let's say, but can you have a social entrepreneurial school other than just one organized in Thailand by this kind of amazing guy who, who did that? Can't, we, can't this be a model that spreads across the world, right? So I, I, for, for me, I mean, that, that is part and parcel with this other big thinking around culture change, around kind of a Gaian-centric um, worldview. Right, and there are institutions, and this goes back to your question of scaling up too. There are institutions that could be readily um, utilized when there's enough kind of basic energy here, right? I mean, the U.S., for good or for ill, we've allowed charter schools to kind of to, to take a, a, a space and take public money. There's nothing stopping us from creating a guy in school, other than the fact there probably aren't enough guyans to run it yet or organize it yet right or at least self-identify but we can start kind of imagining ways that institution building um can can really help us get to an ecocentric future so i think i'll i would end on that point for more information about this project go to postdoom.com <laughs>